Hi, I'm Michelle Weckman. Um, I'm going to be talking today about the assessment and interventions for delirium. Um, I work at the University of Iowa in the Departments of Family Medicine and Psychiatry. My email information is here. Please feel free to contact me if you have any questions or concerns. So, I don't have any financial um, disclosures to report. Um, I will be talking about some non-label use for FDA medications. Uh, or as I do like to say, it means I have not gotten into bed with any drug companies yet. So what are the objectives of today's talk? So I would like to talk about um, delirium, just some of the basics about it. What are the definitions, the importance of it? Um, we're going to talk very briefly about the differences between delirium, dementia, and depression because those two or three conditions can be very, very similar and hard to tell apart sometimes. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about screening tools for delirium, emphasizing the CAM-ICU, which is one of my favorite screening tools. And then we're going to talk briefly about the treatment options that are available for delirium. So I'd like to start with this uh, short case and video clip. So this is a woman who was 56. I took care of her in hospice. Um, she was enrolled for metastatic ovarian cancer. Um, her goal was to live as long as possible, specifically to be able to attend her daughter's wedding in a few months. Um, she came into the intensive care unit with a PCP pneumonia, um, and I saw her there on palliative care consults. Um, it was very clear during her time in the intensive care unit that she had delirium. And um, this delirium was very distressing to her. She um, didn't trust her physicians, she was suspicious, she often looked very frightened and very scared. And I went to interview her a few months after this. Um, she'd get, gotten placed after this hospitalization in a care center, which often happens with patients with delirium. Um, and this is her or sections of an interview about her, um, her recollection of her delirium experience. And so this is TM. What do you remember about that time in the intensive care unit? Okay, um, what I remember is um, whenever I, you know, I saw the ceiling, I, I saw a figure up there, and uh, it was it was a devil yeah. in my mind, and uh, I really truly believe it was. <laughs> and there were people in the room all around me, mm -hmm. and uh, Katie was among them. I remember her there. Yeah. Um, but the others never said anything, but uh, she was talking to me, and uh, the devil would come down and get behind her and behind these other but it never could penetrate around the other people that were in the, the room. Uh, I remember him crawling around, <laughs> but also I remember praying. Yeah. And it was either out loud or in my mind, mm -hmm. I'm not sure which. And uh, there was, uh, at, at one point that I really remember, there was a bright, 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 bright light. And uh, I was praying. And there was a face that was really bright, yeah. and it was down toward my face, and I don't know who it was, 
but it was a, a little person. Okay. It wasn't a big person. Um, a child or just somebody who was small? Just someone who that was small, I think. It wasn't a child. How about the, the devil? He never came close to me. Was it scary to see him? I was concerned because he was coming toward Katie. More worried for your daughter? Yeah. She was there. and uh, But the people around me, or around the bed, there was a bunch. Um, they never uh, left. They, okay. they stood their ground, and he never could come close to her. So it seemed like they were helping to protect her. Yeah. Yeah. And did those people, were they there? They were there. Did you Katie mean, see them? No. Yeah. Did any animals come to visit you while you were in the hospital? Mm -mm. Just the devil. Just he the was, devil. Uh, oh, I want to say like a, like a half goat. Okay. With horns. Okay. He was weird. He was and he like, didn't talk to you? He didn't talk to me. Did he put thoughts in your head at all? Not that I know of. Okay. So, I think she gives a pretty good explanation of delirium and what it is. Um, and at least what her experience was. The one thing that I found very interesting is it was very distressing for her at the time. I saw it. And yet, when she recalls it a couple months later, she puts it in a different perspective that makes it less distressing. Um, helps her sort of incorporate that memory into her life without suffering serious um, side effects from having to remember that awful time. So what else do we know about the patient's perspective of delirium? So Breitbart, in 2002, published one of the first papers on this. He looked at 101 cancer patients who recovered from delirium. They screened using the uh, memoriam, Memorial Delirium Assessment Scale. Half of them were able to recall their delirium. And of those, most of them were pretty distressed by it, a 3.2 out of a 4-point scale. Um, if the patients had delusions, as our sample patient did, um, that would be the most strongly predictive of having continued distress after that. Um, another study looking at this came out in 2009. At that time, Barrera looked at 99 patients with resolved delirium. Um, I'm pretty sure these were all cancer patients. Of those, three-quarters of them remembered their delirium, and of the patients who remembered it, 80% said it was distressing. He also looked at caregivers, and caregivers were even more distressed having observed that delirium among their loved ones. And so how does delirium actually impact the patients other than just their recall? So we've been a number of studies looking at patients who've been admitted to the ICU. We know delirium is just rampant in the ICU. And they found that if they have delusional memories, that they're associated with a much higher rate of anxiety, a higher rate of PTSD. Um, and when you look at advanced cancer patients and you ask their caregivers which of them had delirium, the patients that the caregivers say had delirium have a much worse quality of life. At least their quality of life is reported as being much worse. So how common is delirium? So delirium, it's sort of hard to figure out exactly how common it is because it's very often under-recognized. Um, 
and these numbers you're going to see are going to be all over the board. I apologize about that. There's not much I can do. It's it's because delirium is so often under-recognized or confused with other things that we have difficulty coming up with a really good prevalence. Um, particularly if we're looking at elderly patients who are at home, I have not seen anybody who's gone out and looked at home-dwelling elderly and, and checked to see how many were delirious. Hopefully not very many. However, there have been a couple of studies where they've looked at patients who were delirious at the time of hospital admission, and at the time of hospital admission, anywhere from 10 to 30% of those patients were delirious. And that's a pretty high percentage, and I would think some of those patients would have been delirious even prior to that day of hospital admission. During hospitalization, those numbers range from 3 to 30%. And delirium is also very commonly superimposed on dementia. So you have this dementia patient who for some reason gets worse. Maybe they have an infection or something else like that. Oftentimes, this worsening in behaviors or mental status is because of a, a delirium. We believe that in the community at any given time, patients with dementia, about 22% also have delirium. And when those dementia patients are hospitalized, that delirium prevalence goes up significantly, up to 90% in some cases. So this is just another busy slide talking about the prevalence of delirium um, in hospitalized, different hospitalized patients. Hospitalized elderly, again, these numbers are all over the board, range from 15 to 50%. In cancer patients, really roughly the same. On a palliative care unit, um, anywhere from 28 to 42%. I think it's probably a little bit higher, having been on palliative care units. Um, in the ICU, it's up to 80%. And if there's any people who work in the ICU out there, I'm guessing that I would be seeing some nodding right now because you walk into an ICU and almost every single patient you see is confused, um, in part because they're so medically ill and in part because of some of the things we do to patients in the ICU that can be con confusing and disorienting, um, especially to our elderly patients. Um, and the other place we see a lot of delirium is prior to death. Sometimes this is also called terminal delirium, but it's pretty uncommon for me to see a patient who's able to go through until the end and not get confused or delirious. So now this, we're going to talk a little bit about delirium and what it is. How do we define it? How do we pick it up? So the gold standard is the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. We're on version 4TR. They're currently working on version 5. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to change the definition of delirium in that version. I suspect they won't, but I don't know until it comes out. Um, but this just defines delirium with four key features. So first you have a disturbance of consciousness um, and a decreased ability to focus, sustain, or shift attention. And then you need a change in cognition or difficulty thinking is sort of how I look at it. Executive functions aren't working right. Um, this could also be a new hallucination, um, but hallucinations are not, don't have to be present. Um, and you need to make sure that this isn't because of some pre-existing condition or just a worsening dementia. Um, this is one of the key features next. The disturbance develops over a short period of time and tends to fluctuate over the course of the day. So one of the problems with the short period of time is sometimes patients have been delirious for a long time before this is picked up. So you need to be able to get a good history from caregivers. Maybe three weeks ago, their elderly mother started having problems or there was a change um, versus somebody that you're seeing in the hospital who's fine one day and not fine the next. 
And then the other piece of delirium is we want to find some sort of physical or medical cause for it. Um, that being said, we can't always find the cause, or the cause is always is not always, but is often felt to be multifactorial. So, I mean, I like to call delirium the great pretender, sort of like we call syphilis the great pretender, because it has delirium has so many different names. We can call it, um, I've seen it called confusion, encephalopathy, ICU psychosis, um, sundowning, cerebral insufficiency. One of my favorites is actually acute brain failure. That's in the literature. Um, but I almost think that that's the best definition out there because that really is what's happening. When somebody has delirium, their brain's failing. It's just not working right. And then it's just a reminder that delirium, depression, and dementia can all share some of the same features. And I need to apologize. This is a very busy slide, but it does a nice job at sort of separating out all the different features of delirium um, versus dementia or depression. I'm not going to completely go into this. I'm going to um, skip through some points. Uh, the slide is there for your reference, so you have it. But um, delirium, again, as we talked about, tends to have an acute onset, um, while dementia is slow and progressive. And depression, um, weeks to months, so sort of a longer onset, sometimes even longer in some people. Delirium fluctuates, while dementia and depression tend to be relatively stable. Depression is more impacted by situational events, so you may see fluctuation with that. Um, delirium ideally resolves with treatment as does depression, but dementia tends to be chronic and ongoing, chronically progressive. Um, uh, consciousness in delirium is, is changed while it tends to be normal or close to normal in dementia and depression. Um, orientation. So this is a big one. So while patients with delirium can be or may be disoriented, they don't have to be. Um, patients with dementia often can be disoriented as well. Um, just because somebody knows who they are, where they're at, and what's going on doesn't mean that they don't have delirium. I just had a case this last weekend where I was asked to see a patient in the ICU. When I went in, the resident called me. She um, said this patient had a sudden increase in her pain, and she was calling out, and she was saying, Jesus, please, Jesus, come take me away. Um, this was an 83-year-old who was admitted with failure to thrive and had some GI concerns. And I asked the resident, I said, um, is this patient delirious? Have you considered that? And the resident responded, well, she knows who she is, and she knows where she's at, so no, I don't think she's delirious. And then when I got up to the unit to see her, it was pretty clear that she did have delirium. And yes, she did know who she was, and she knew she was in a hospital, and she knew she was in a hospital because she was sick. But she was having hallucinations. She wasn't able to focus or have attention on things. She was having difficulty thinking. Um, and her mental status was actually fluctuating even when I was in the room between being really sleepy and really awake. Um, so just because somebody's oriented does not mean that they don't have delirium. Um, so just to move on a little quickly through the rest of the slides, or the rest of this very busy slide. So delirium, um, again, attention is changed. Um, their memory tends to be impaired. Mood tends to be labile, which we can also see in um, dementia. Patients who have depression typically don't have labile moods. They're consistently flat or blunted. Um, people with depression tend to be able to think okay, but they may have an 
overwhelming or overriding sense of being hopeless or helpless. With delirium, um, that thinking doesn't work so well. It's just disorganized. It's fragmented. Um, and then de with dementia, they may have some problems with abstraction or judgment, but the thinking tends to be, you can often follow the, the lineage until it gets really bad. Um, speech can be impaired in both delirium and dementia. Um, it tends to be normal in depression. Sleep-wake cycle, you can have disturbances in all of them. Um, I think in delirium dementia, it's more common to see that fragmented or the sleep-wake cycle reverse reversal uh, than with depression. Um, delusions, much more common in delirium than in anything else. Um, and hallucinations, uh, more common again in delirium than in either dementia or depression. So what are some of those risk factors for delirium? As we get older, a lot of these just sort of naturally develop. We have problems with our vision. Uh, we have more medical illnesses. Um, we may not eat as well and be malnourished. We're on a lot of medications. Any more than three medications, you're much more likely to have delirium. Um, having high blood pressure, um, I think that's because you have some vascular hits to your brain, makes it more common um, or more likely that somebody's going to get delirium. Um, having a history of um, alcohol abuse or smoking, um, having any kind of restraints, and that could be a Foley, that could be an IV, um, anything that stops people from being able to move increases the risk for delirium. Um, and something I'd like to mention that we don't think about, just being constipated in an elderly patient can be enough to make them delirious. So why do we care about delirium? Um, why do we want to identify it? Why should we treat it? Well, I would maintain it's incredibly common. Um, we also know that patients who become delirious have a shorter life expectancy than patients who don't become delirious, even with the same medical problems. Um, I mean, you might say, oh, that's sort of a no-brainer. Patients who are really sick have a shorter life expectancy than patients who aren't. However, if you match the patients um, with you know the stage of CHF with the ones who do and don't become delirious, the patients who become delirious don't live as long. Um, the other thing is, is particularly elderly patients who are hospitalized with delirium, a lot of them are discharged before that delirium resolves. Um, and the patients who are discharged with delirium back to home, more than 20% of them end up placed in a nursing home. So that's a pretty high number. We also know that patients who are delirious in the hospital are much more likely to be placed in a nursing home directly from that hospital admission. So 73% of patients who have delirium get placed in a nursing home versus 30% of patients, and these are age and condition matched controls, who don't have delirium. So it's like the patient that we saw earlier. Um, she was not in a nursing home prior to that hospitalization. However, following it, she was placed in a nursing home. And was that because of her delirium? I don't know, but the delirium definitely helped, impact, helped to impact that placement. The other thing is delirium is incredibly distressing, as we've seen to the patient and the family. And as we keep doing more research on this, we're discovering that there is more long-term evidence of um, cognitive deficits. And we're starting to think that patients who develop delirium, that this may be a trigger for dementia. So if you've had a delirium, you're more likely to develop dementia in the future. And the other thing, just from a practical cost standpoint, 
Patients who have delirium, they stay in the hospital longer and they cost more. They can't tell us what's wrong, so we need to do more treatments and we need to do more evaluations. So how exactly do you diagnose delirium? So we have another uh, short video clip. This is a 68-year-old who was admitted to the hospital with lung cancer and hemoptysis that I'm seeing um, on consults. And he gives a very good history of um, some mild delirium. And again, this is just a short video clip of, of what, his, what he is experiencing with this. So you had said over the last couple of days you had a couple episodes of some confusion. Yeah. Can you tell me what that experience was like for you? Oh, it seemed like that. Uh, running across into the wall, like that, a mouse running across the, the hall or on somebody's head, or I'd see somebody sitting there with four eyes. Okay. Did you think these experiences were real? No, I knew it. You're saying there were three hours now. Okay. No, so I knew you're you have three hours. Right. Yeah. That's true. I don't have three eyes. So that's where I'm seeing. And have there been times when you haven't known where you were at or who you yeah. were? Yeah, there were times when I wake up in the hospital and I wouldn't have a clue what, uh, where I was when I look around at the hospital. So now let me see which one I'm running today. Okay. Are these unusual thoughts for you? Oh, really? They're usually pretty sharp and pretty with it. Yeah. So, this gentleman had a mild case of delirium when I saw him. Um, his hemoptysis improved, um, but he remained short of breath. Um, he remained a little bit confused. He was discharged to a, to a hospice house and um, died uh, three days later. Um, previous to this hospitalization, he had been living home and independent. So it's another sort of case of this delirium for him was sort of a harbinger of his death. So just to review again delirium and what it is. So it's a disturbance of consciousness. Um, it's a change in cognition or the development of a perceptual disturbance. It has a rapid onset and it tends to fluctuate. And there's an underlying medical condition. So how exactly do you diagnose delirium? So delirium is a clinical bedside diagnosis. Um, we have a lot of screening tools that can sort of point us in the right um, direction. All of these tools to be useful need to be able to assess cognitive impairment and deficits in attention. So when should we use these screening tools? There's also often sort of this prodromal syndrome before delirium happens. So you may see subtle changes in mood, personality, behavior, cognition. So your patient may suddenly be a little more anxious or distractible or restless or irritable. They may say that they're not sleeping quite right. Um, and I understand that this is, everything I've mentioned here is incredibly common. We see this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, our patients come into clinic saying these things all the time. Um, when should we scream for delirium? And I think if you've got an elderly patient who's saying these things that you need to at least have it in the back of your mind and you need to consider screening for it. Um, the screening tests can be done in under two minutes. I mean, they're really, really quite quick. 
And if they're negative, it's sort of reassuring. If they're positive, it says, okay, wait a second, I need to go back and look at this a little more closely and figure out what's going on. So what are some of the common bedside tests that we can do? Well, a clock draw. Um, clock draws are sensitive, they're specific, they're quick and easy. You can do these in a couple of minutes. And you can follow them serially to sort of see when delirium improves. Um, the problem with clock draws is if you don't have a baseline, it can be really difficult sometimes to know whether this is an underlying dementia or if this is a new delirium. Um, so, I mean, somebody who sees elderly patients in the outpatient clinic, you know, you could just do a clock draw as part of your annual exam. Um, and then you'd have something to compare it to from year to year. Um, and then the mini mental status exam, I mean, I mention it because we're taught it, so we use it. That being said, technically these days it's copyrighted, so you should be paying them a dollar every time you use it. Um, but it's a helpful cognitive assessment tool. It's more useful to, for dementia than it actually is for diagnosing delirium. But it can be used, at least parts of it can be used, with some of these other screening tests to make them a little more sensitive to pick up delirium. So why do we want to do a screening tool? You know, it's because we as healthcare providers are pretty bad at picking up delirium, in part because we don't think about it, and in part we're just not good at it. So in 2007, Dublin looked at an academic MICU, um, so a medical intensive care unit. He looked at 25 physicians. He conducted 300 delirium assessments on 100 patients. Um, he did exclude any physicians who had more than two months of psychiatry experience. Um, so a number of the more educated physicians uh, were excluded. So what they asked them to do is they asked the physician to evaluate two patients for delirium. And following that, the unit, um, a unit nurse and a delirium expert, who they called a judge, then evaluated the same patients. After the physicians evaluated the patients, they underwent a 20-minute training session and using a screening tool, the ICDSC, um, which you'll see next. Then they went back after that screening tool and evaluated two more patients. So this is just what the um, ICU delirium screening check look, chest checklist looks like. Um, and it's looking for the things we talked about. Are they having problems with inattention? Are they disoriented? Are they hallucinating? Is their speech or mood inappropriate? Are they having trouble with their sleep-wake cycle disturbance? Are they agitated or are they slowed motorly? Um, and are those symptoms fluctuating? And a lot of where they get this information is from talking to the nurses, talking to the um, sometimes patients, talking to the um, family members, looking at the charting. Some of it's direct observation and some of it is getting history. So what did they find? So they found before they trained people in doing this, that the judges picked up five of the patients, five of those hundred with the delirium, the, the RNs picked up four, and the physicians didn't pick up any patients. The ones with delirium they didn't catch. However, there were four patients who did not have delirium that the physicians said, oh wait, they have delirium. So they were sort of 0 for 4 or even 0 for 8. Um, and then after that 20-minute training session, um, they looked at a whole new consult of patients. So the judge picked up 11, the, the, the nurses picked up 10, the MDs picked up 8. So that's a huge improvement from not recognizing any with delirium to now recognizing most of them that were found with delirium. And they incorrectly found delirium in one patient. Um, 
So just that brief 20-minute training session improved their recognition of delirium. And I'd say once you start using these tools, you're going to find that delirium is pretty common, um, and you're going to get better at using them. So what are the tools that we have? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's been developed quite a while ago. Um, the, the MDAS, or the Memorial Delirium Assessment Scale, is an older one. It was developed in 1997, um, and it was developed to rate delirium severity designed to be used by experienced mental health professionals. It has 10 domains, and it takes a little over 10 minutes to do. Um, to be used with that is often the delirium rating scale. Um, there's a revised version out now. It screens and rates the severity of delirium in 16 questions. It's designed to be used by a psychiatrist after a psychiatric interview has been completed. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Um, it's often used in conjunction with the MDAS for research projects. Um, and then there's that ICU delirium screening checklist that we just looked at. It looks at those eight items. And you want to consider the previous 24 hours. The only problem with this is it's not all that specific, only 64%. Here's a couple of more, a couple more uh, measurement instruments. There's the Nietzsche Confusion Scale. Um, this was developed to be used at bedside by nurses. There's only six items, um, but it's not been validated. So we're not sure if it's specific for delirium or if it also has some overlap with dementia. And then there's the Delirium-O-Meter, and I include this because I like saying it, Delirium-O-Meter. It's sort of fun. Um, it's developed for use by nurses. It's a little unique in the sense that it's, it's 12 items and it will separate patients out into hyper or hypoactive delirium. Um, and why do we care about that? So patients with hyperactive delirium are more likely to get treated because they're going to be acting out, they're going to be pulling out their lines, they're going to be trying to strike people, um, they're going to be causing a nuisance. While patients with hypoactive delirium are more often to sort of be left alone because they're not causing any problems. Um, if I had a nickel for every time I did psychiatric consults and I got a call saying, hey, could you come evaluate this, you know, 78-year-old lady who we think has depression after her cardiac surgery? And I go up and see her and there she is laying in bed, not doing anything, not interacting, who, and she has a hypoactive delirium. She's not depressed. She just has this hypoactive delirium. And from one standpoint, it really doesn't make any difference if they're hyperactive or hypoactive because there's no evidence that one type or the other has a worse outcome. They're both distressing and they both have um, significant morbidity. So the other um, measurement instrument that we often use is the CAM. Um, it's a confusion assessment method. It was developed in 1990 by a panel. It's based on the DSM-3 revised version. Um, it's designed to be used by non-psychiatrists. Um, to make this work, you need to do some sort of cognitive testing. You can do the mini mental status exam, you can do the short blessed test, um, whatever works for you. And it takes, in general, 10 to 15 minutes with that cognitive testing. It looks at nine different criteria, um, whether there was an acute onset, is there inattention, is there problems with thinking or level of consciousness, are the patients disoriented, is there problems with their memory, are they having those hallucinations or those perceptual disturbances? Or are they agitated or psychomotor retarded? Um, and how is the sleep cycle going? That CAM was the basis of the delirium screening tool that I like to use called the CAM-ICU. Um, 
and the CAM ICU was developed to assess for delirium quickly in ICU patients. I have successfully moved it into other patient populations, but it's not validated in other patient populations at this time. Um, you can train staff to do it in less than 20 minutes. Um, it takes less than two minutes to do. It's sensitive and it's specific, even with mild to moderate dementia. Um, but I do think that because it is so short that we can miss some mild delirium. And sometimes we miss that prodromal stage. Um, this is in comparison to the CAM, um, which tends, it's a little bit more um, sensitive. It tends to pick up more of those mild cases than the CAM ICU does. Um, you use it with some sort of scale to assess um, sedation or level of consciousness. They say the RAS, if your institution uses Richmond, you can certainly use the Richmond. It doesn't make any difference. All we really care about is, is their level of alertness anything different than calm and uh, interactive. It's available in 10 different languages. And again, it's uh, sensitive and specific. And when you look at different raters, it tends to be very reliable. And so this is a video that's put out by the uh, Vanderbilt who developed the CAM-ICU. And it just shows some examples of patients um, that they're doing the CAM-ICU on. And the one thing I will say about the video is that they do two different, they measure attention two different ways in these patients. When you're doing it in real life, you don't need to do two different ways. You can just pick one. Hi, my name is Dr. Wes Ely, and I'm here in a medical intensive care unit to demonstrate an assessment of a patient on mechanical ventilation using the confusion assessment method for the ICU, the CAM ICU, for determining whether or not a patient is delirious. Ma'am, I'm going to ask you a few questions. My name is Brenda, and I'm one of the nurses here in the ICU. I'm just going to ask you a few questions to see how clearly you're thinking. How many fingers am I holding up? Can you hold up that many fingers? Very good. Can you hold up that many with the other hand? Perfect. Have you had any unclear thinking today? Good. A lot of our patients in the ICU do have unclear thinking, but that's great that you don't today. Can you squeeze my hand? Very good. I'm going to say some letters, and I want you to squeeze my hand only when I say the letter A. Okay, let's practice. A, good. Here we go. S, A, H, E, V, A, A, R, A, T. Perfect. I'm going to show you some pictures. I want you to pay attention because I'm going to show you some more after I show you this first set. Can you see them if I hold them right here? Can you see that? That's a boot and a dog, a knife, a pair of pants, and a paintbrush. I'm going to show you 10 more pictures. Five are going to be new and five are these same ones I just showed you.
Did you see a fork in the first set of pictures? Did you see a boot in the first set? Best guess. Okay. Did you see a paintbrush? Did you see a cat? Did you see a dress? Did you see a toothbrush? Did you see a shoe? Did you see a knife? Did you see a dog? Did you see a pair of pants? Very good. You got 100% right. Now I'm going to ask you four questions. They're really simple, just yes or no questions. Will a stone float on water? Does one pound weigh more than two pounds? Are there fish in the sea? And can you use a hammer to pound a nail? Very good, 100%. Can you squeeze my hand? Good job. I want you to squeeze my hand when I say the letter A, but only when I say A, okay? Let's practice. A, good, here we go, S, A, H, E, V, you four questions. They're just yes, no, so you'll have to just nod your head. Are you with me? Can you open your eyes? Good job. Here we go. Will a stone float on water? Yes or no? Okay, next question. Are there fish in the sea? Yes or no? Was that a yes? Two more questions, okay? Can you use a hammer to pound a nail? Yes or no? Can you nod yes or no? Can you use a hammer? There you go. One more question. Does one pound weigh more than two pounds? That one's hard. Does one pound weigh more than two pounds? Yes or no? Okay, now we are going to move on. I'm going to just walk you through the Chem ICU. 
um, in a little bit more detail. So the first feature you want to look at is there an acute onset or fluctuating course. So you'll see that this looks a lot like the DSM-4 diagnosis. The second feature measures your inattention. The third feature measures how well they're thinking, disorganized thinking. And the fourth feature, you want to measure their current level of consciousness. So are they anything other than alert and calm currently? So this is just a flowchart sort of as ways to think about doing it. So to have a diagnosis or a positive CAM-ICU, you need to have an acute onset or fluctuating mental course. You get this from the family or from the nurses or from the patient sometimes. Um, you need to have inattention as well as either disorganized thinking or an altered level of consciousness. So if you have an acute onset, you have inattention, and you know they're sort of sleepy or they're agitated, you don't have to do the disorganized thinking part. Sometimes I do it anyway because it gives me a little bit more information, but you don't need to do that to use the screening tool. So feature one, acute or fluctuating course. Um, sometimes you see that right when you're in the room, or if you've been following this patient every day, you can see that from day to day. But it's often easiest to just ask. Ask the family, ask the caregivers, ask the nurses. Are they different than normal? Has there been changes? Or have you noticed that they've been fluctuating in the last 24 hours? Feature two is inattention, or as I like to say, all attentive patients are alert, but not all alert patients are attentive. So they can be awake and alert, but not able to pay attention. And so this is one of the most important features for diagnosing delirium. They do it quite simply here with that attention screening examination. And it's as you saw in the previous video, you can do it either auditory by doing the letters or visual. The maximum score is 10. They're allowed to miss two. If they miss more than two, it's positive. And you, again, can use either one. Um, and I do actually ask um, patients to squeeze my hands when I do this because it gives me some information about their mental status I wouldn't get otherwise. Um, one of the critics, or some of, one of the um, reasons people criticize using this screening tool in patients who aren't intubated is because it has, it's nonverbal in this section. Um, it's made to be nonverbal entirely if need be. Um, but when patients squeeze my hand, if they don't let go, it sort of tells me something about what's going on and how well they're thinking. Um, and I can, you know, do things such as grip and stuff like that. So it gives me more information than I would get versus just having them nod their head when I say an A or something like that. So this is just an example of the visual screening cards. As you saw in that example, you know, you'd show them the cards on the top and then the five cards and say, okay, did you see these when you show them the 10 cards on the bottom? And these screening cards can be downloaded um, from a website that's listed at the end um, from the ICU Delirium uh, website. Um, or you can do the auditory one. I would say that you know, 99 times out of 100, I do this auditory one instead. And you just read the series of letters. Um, save a heart is what I use. It's easy to remember, except heart, instead of having an H-E-A-R-T, it's H-A-A-R-T. And again, you score that out of 10. So disorganized thinking, this is one of the hardest things to do. Um, and you really want to base it on your entire interview and assessment. And they need to do both the commands and those yes-no questions. There's five points. They're allowed to miss one. Um, and the reason that they added the command 
is so that somebody couldn't just accidentally get both of the yes and no questions correct. So they have two sets of yes and no questions, so you can use these on different days or at different assessments on the same day. Um, I tend to just sort of pick from them. I know them all in my brain, um, and I just will pick whatever comes to mind. Um, I just want to make sure that I have one yes question, I mean, sorry, two yes questions and two no questions. And they're all relatively simple questions. And then the commands, you ask people to hold up fingers, um, you demonstrate the first part, and then you add something on that you don't demonstrate. So you can say, do the same thing with the other hand. I often just add, ask them to add one more finger while I continue holding up my two fingers so that I know that they're just not following my visual cues, but they have to sort of think about what I've asked them to do and then process that information and then do that. And then the altered level of consciousness, this is really the easiest thing to do. Um, it's positive if you have a RAS score other than zero, which means that they're anything other than acute, I'm sorry, they're other, anything other than alert and calm. Um, so if they're a little bit agitated or they're a little bit sleepy, then that's positive. So this is an example of me doing a CAM ICU. This is a 72-year-old with pancreatic cancer. So his wife brought him into the clinic because he was at home and he was confused. Um, and you can just sort of see this, this whole video clip takes about two minutes. Um, and this is a slower CAM ICU because he has some cognitive slowing and uh, isn't processing really well. So let you just watch this clip and uh, think about whether you think he has delirium or not. So I want you to take my hand, squeeze my fingers. Good. Every time I say the letter A, I'd like you to squeeze my fingers. Can you do that? We'll do a trial. A. Good. Now I'm going to say a series of letters when I get to A. Would you squeeze for me? S, A, V, E, A, and you can let go in between, H, A, a R T Good. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Yes or no questions? Are there fish in the sea? Yes or no? Yes. Will a stone float on water? Yes or no? Can you use a hammer to pound a nail? Yes or no? No. Does one pound weigh more than two? Yes or no? Yes. Can you raise this many fingers for me? This many? Good. Now do the same with your other hand. Very good.
Okay, so yes, this gentleman did have um, a delirium, and unfortunately in him, despite some pretty good treatment, he lived with the delirium for a couple of months before he finally died, and um, we never were able to get it under good control. So that leads us into strategies for managing delirium. What do you want to do? Now that you've decided somebody has delirium, what's the next step? So we're going to talk about the fact that we need to identify and treat um, the medical causes that we can, um, institute non-pharmacological measures. They're labor and time intensive sometimes, but there's no downside to doing them. Then there's pharmacological measures we can use. It's very important to educate the family and include them in your treatment plan. And then at the same time to make sure you sort of take care of yourself because we do know that delirium is incredibly distressing to the healthcare providers in addition to the patients and the families. So this is just a reminder again of the risk factors for delirium um, because this is where you start. You have this patient, they have delirium, and you say, okay, where are my risk factors and what can I, what can I um, adjust right now? Do I need to help them put their glasses on? Are they getting ill? Do I need to screen for a bladder infection? Um, have something happened that they're now functionally limited? Are they constipated? So you want to think about your risk factors. And a pretty typical delirium workup um, includes reviewing your medications or risk factors. So sort of the things to think about in the elderly, the beers list, any anticholinergics. Did they have trouble sleeping so they just started taking Benadryl? Um, were they just put on Reglan because they were having problems with nausea? Um, so you want to look at their medications. A lot of causes are times when somebody has delirium. Just by simplifying medications, we can improve that delirium. Um, you want to do a good physical exam and history, um, not forgetting to ask about alcohol and drug use. Um, I think we're getting more savvy about this, but it wasn't uncommon to see elderly patients, you know, your little old lady who's 83, who'd been living at home alone since her husband died six years ago, um, who comes into the hospital for something and you know two or three days after she is admitted she's squirrely and she's confused and you come to find out that well she's been having you know three vodka martinis every night or she's been drinking you know three glasses of wine um, so this is a delirium probably caused by her alcohol withdrawal that nobody picked up because nobody thought to ask this cute little old 83 year old whether she'd been drinking um, it's often common to do electrolytes in a CBC, um, it's looking for infection or looking for things that are easy to fix. If you find anything on physical exam, you want to do focused labs for that. If you think they could be you know, having problems with their thyroid, check their thyroid. Um, and we sometimes consider head imaging, but that is by no means standard, and quite honestly, it usually has a very low yield unless you think something has happened like a stroke or you think there's a tumor. Um, don't usually find anything with head imaging, but it can be very reassuring to the patient and family if it's negative. So what are the non-pharmacological interventions? So um, Sharon Inouye in 1993 published a great study on this, um, and she listed it into these following categories. So, so cognitive interventions. You want to keep them oriented. If they have a calendar in the room, let's make sure it's set to the right date. Write down or state your name. So when you go to see somebody, say, Hi, I'm Dr. Weckman, um, and I will be seeing you to talk about this or to take care of that. Um, and do this every time you go in. So, so continually reorientate people. 
and then doing cognitively stimulating activities. Um, if they like doing crosswords or doing word finds, doing things to sort of keep the brain functioning and moving can be helpful. Sleep, so keeping to a regular routine, um, doing sleep aids that are non-pharmacological, so playing relaxing music, doing massage, having a warm glass of milk or a warm glass of tea before bed, maybe a bath. Um, and especially in the hospital, doing those environmental things, so decrease the noise, limit the nighttime medications, limit things that would wake them up during the night. Then look at mobility. What can you do to improve their mobility? Um, can you take that IV out? Can you take that Foley out? Um, anything to increase mobility decreases your chance of delirium. And then visual aids. Do they have their glasses? Do they have a large clock or a large dial phone? Hearing aids. Do their hearing aids in? And you know, we often forget to do this. It's a really easy check. Do they have wax in their ear? Is their ear completely clogged up with wax? And then making sure they have enough to drink. And this is just by offering water. Um, I'm often surprised at how often I'll walk into a hospital room and see, you know, somebody, a little old lady who's stuck in bed who doesn't move very well. And so, yes, the aide brought her pitcher of water in, but it's sitting on the table, you know, halfway across the room. Um, actually putting that pitcher of water next to her, pouring some in a glass so that she can reach it, or every time a caregiver goes in, saying, hey, are you thirsty? Would you like something to drink? Just doing that can improve delirium. So what happened when Dr. NUI looked at hospitalized patients and did these non-pharmacological interventions? So she looked at 852 hospitalized older patients. She did the interventions that we just talked about and found that in the group that she did the interventions in, the delirium rate was about 10%, and this is using the CAM, or the, um, CAM the Confusion Assessment Method. In the group with the usual CARES, it was 15%. Um, so that made a big difference, just doing those simple non-pharmacological interventions. Um, she went back and looked at her data a little bit later and um, wanted to see how good the nurses were at actually doing these. And she found that of the almost um, 10,000 patient days, 57% of the time there was complete adherence. 87% of the time there was partial adherence. And as the adherence improved, so as the nurses did more of these interventions or the family members, the delirium rate actually decreased. So the better we were at doing these interventions, the better we were at preventing delirium. So that risk of delirium in these patients was almost 90% lower if we did all of these non-pharmacological interventions. And so these are sort of built as preventative interventions. However, once delirium develops, if you start them, you can certainly shorten it. So there have been other non-pharmacological studies. Um, of them, again, this Inuit study was the best, with the best design. It showed the best, most robust uh, response. But there's been studies looking at just doing a geriatric consultation for elderly patients. Um, there was one positive study in 2001, there was a negative study in 2006, um, and there's been studies looking at putting in a PCA for post-op pain control, um, and they found that when you let patients control their own pain control, they tend to do better, less delirium. One of those sort of funny things is that patients who are in pain and don't have enough pain medication are at a higher risk for developing delirium 
And patients who have too many or too much pain medication are at a higher risk for developing delirium. So if we don't get it exactly right, patients can become delirious, either from not getting enough pain medications or from doing too much, which makes it a little bit challenging sometimes. And then there's a study that I really like. They looked at playing music um, for patients who've had elderly patients who had um, surgery. And the patients who had music therapy come by were less likely to develop delirium. So there are a lot of things we can do without pulling out our medications. However, when those things aren't working, it's not unreasonable to use medications. There is no medication that's FDA approved for the treatment of delirium. Um, and there's no well-designed, published, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials. The trials we have are small, um, and they're in a lot of different patient populations. So what are the common medications we use anyway? Neuroleptics are probably the most common, um, and then we also use sedatives. Of those neuroleptics, we've been using Haldol and Thorazine the longest. Um, there's been more and more literature in some of the newer ones, olanzapine, which is Zyprexa, Risperdone, which is Risperdal, Quetiapine, which is Seroquel, and I've even seen some case studies on Abilify. Um, as we go through, um, I'm going to make a case that the newer generations are really no more effective than the older generations. Um, but of that, we really start at pretty low doses um, with the Haldol, you know, 0.5 to 1 milligram every 30 minutes um, PRN uh, escalating or increasing as needed. And a little old, old person will often just start a half milligram BID and then let the nurses have um, the ability to change or to give PRNs as needed to get symptoms under control. Um, the nurses really should have the ability to give enough to get their symptoms under control. And then you can look at those 24-hour doses and go back through and um, recalculate and so then increase your next daily dose depending on how much they need. Um, of the sedatives, I think Ativan is probably the most common. We do occasionally need to use midazolam or Versed. These tend to be in hospitalized patients for very acute symptoms. Um, and there is, delirium is the most common reason that somebody receives palliative sedation at the end of life. And so there's a role at that time um, for the propofol um, to help keep them calm and comfortable. So Haldol or Halperidol versus lorazepam. So this is the study that all of our guidelines are pretty much based on. It occurred in 1991, and it was a double-blind, random, randomized control patients. Breitbart looked at 244 patients with AIDS. Um, of those, 12% developed delirium, so not a lot. During the study, he used a delirium rating scale to screen, um, and then he randomized those 30 patients to receive either Haldol, um, Thorazine, or Ativan. And what he found was that the Haldol was equal to the Thorazine, but they were both much more effective than the Ativan. In fact, they stopped the Ativan arm early because those patients did so much more poorly. There's been a number of studies, um, small studies again, looking at the atypicals, um, so Risperdal, Seroquel, and Zyprexa. And all of them, again, small studies, small ends, um, some of them open label, showed a reduction in the severity or the resolution of delirium. Um, 
One caveat is there was an increase in delirium in some of the olanzapine studies. So olanzapine and um, thorazine are slightly more anticholinergic than some of the other antipsychotics, and this anticholinergic activity in some patients can worsen or even precipitate a delirium. That being said, I still use them. I just am cautious. So there have been a number of comparison trials as well. Um, Haldol is equivalent to olanzapine. There's been studies looking at Haldol and Risperdal and Haldol and Quetiapine. Um, and being equivalent, uh, Haldol tends to be much less expensive. Um, it's very easy to dose and is often the first agent I use. That being said, Zyprexa and Risperdal have the advantage of coming in a soluble tablet that you can just put on the tongue um, that's often very well tolerated. So what are some of the other pharmacological things we can do? We can opioid rotate. So when you change opioids, you can also often um, decrease your dose by 20 to 25% um, just by changing agents. And so there were two studies looking at rotating from morphine to either fentanyl or morphine to oxycodone, and they discovered on these studies um, that the pain stayed well controlled with the rotation, but their mental status improved. And then there's been a couple of studies looking at methylphenidate or Ritalin. Um, all of the ones that were out there looked at hypoactive delirium when they weren't really sure what was causing it. Um, it's a less than ideal study because they marked confusion based on the mini mental status exam um, and looking at just sleep-wake uh, disturbances. But they did find that patients that they gave this uh, methylphenidate to tended to have improved cognition as well as improved sleep-wake cycles. So now we're just going to go on uh, briefly to talk about the um, recommendations that are out there. So the NCCN guidelines in 2007 says to do what we've been talking about doing. You look for your underlying causes and you correct them if possible. And then they recommended starting with Haldol at low doses, uh, PRN, and saying that you can substitute some of those atypical antipsychotics. Um, I will say for patients who have a really bad agitated delirium, I'll often start with uh, Thorazine and not Haldol because I think it's a little more sedating. And if you've titrated to a reasonable amount or if they're having symptoms from the antipsychotics, um, they recommend adding on some low-dose um, benzodiazepines. Again, just for refractory agitation, they don't recommend starting with those. And then they want you to titrate the dose till it's effective. One of the things I really like about these guidelines is they say you need to support the caregiver because I didn't go into it today, but delirium is incredibly distressing to caregivers. So we need to make sure that they have the support that they need. So the American Psychiatric Association also has guidelines as to pharmacological recommendations in delirium. And again, they say, let's make sure the patient's safe. Once we know that they're safe, we want to look for the etiology and treat it if possible. They say to start with the non-pharmacological things first. So look at the environment, look at the behavioral situations, and try to fix those if you can. And then they say treat with the first-generation antipsychotics. Um, and there was some literature thinking that um, cholinesterase inhibitors might help with delirium. Um, it hasn't really shown to be necessarily true. There have been some studies using Aricept um, in particular, and it did not show improvement in mental status. But um, the APA still says you could try the cholinesterase inhibitors for drug-induced delirium. 
and they say specifically to avoid benzodiazepines, since we know that benzodiazepines are often a precipitating factor for delirium. The other place I like to look is in the Cochrane database. Um, what the Cochrane database at this point says is that Haldol is a drug of choice, and you can substitute a Thorazine, and that Haldol at less than 3.5 milligrams a day is equivalent to Risperdal or Olanzapine. Um, if you use Haldol greater than 4.5 milligrams a day, a slightly higher incidence of EPS. Um, and they mention the fact that preoperative Haldol may decrease the severity and duration of post-surgical delirium. And this is based on studies um, that came out looking at elderly patients with hip replacements, where they put them on Haldol prophylactically after their um, hip replacement. I think they use one milligram a day or one milligram twice a day for up to five days. And they found that these patients still got delirium, but the delirium wasn't as severe and it didn't last as long. Um, which impacted length of stay and hospital charges, which tended to be better in these patients who weren't as delirious. But there's really not a lot of good evidence that um, prophylactic treatment will prevent delirium. Those studies just haven't been done yet. So in summary, um, I hope you picked up the fact that delirium is common, it's distressing, it has significant morbidity for the patient and family. Um, it's really easy to screen for it. So if you have a high level of suspicion, or even if you just get in the practice of screening everybody you see, um, but the screening is really quick and easy to do. That Kim, I see you can be done in less than two minutes. And I've been surprised at times when I've done this on patients where I've expected they'd do fine and they don't. Um, but it's certainly worth doing because if we don't recognize it, we don't have the chance of treating it. Um, and there are effective treatments out there. Are they always effective? No, but some of them certainly help. Um, ideally, you start with the non-pharmacological and then move to the pharmacological, and those treatments we do can we do know can be um, improve long-term outcome. So these are just some useful web uh, resources to end this. Um, there's the NUI site in delirium. Um, it has a good bibliography and it has how to do the CAM. Then there's uh, Ely's website on delirium, and again, that's how to do the CAM ICU. Um, they've got video links, and um, you can download most of the stuff you saw in this talk today right from that site. Everything you need is right there. Um, and then the um, NCCN guidelines under palliative care has some good information on delirium. And I also included the link to the um, Cochrane database. Thank you for your attention and have a great day.